This morning, our text of Scripture comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, the calling of the first disciples. I invite you to listen for God's Word. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now the next day, John again was standing in with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? And so, gracious God, you who have come as light into the darkness, bring light now that we may see clearly and hear your word. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Imagine yourself this morning standing before Jesus Christ. What question do you think Jesus would ask you? He might ask, perhaps, why you haven't prayed more often or been more faithful in your attendance at worship or a little more generous in your charitable giving in 2016. Or might he ask you why you haven't been a kinder and a better spouse or parent Or might he ask why you continue to remain at odds with a family member or some colleague at work? Might the Lord confront you with some besetting sin or some weakness of character or courage? If you're like me, I often imagine that 
God, who knows all things, would question me about my greatest failures and my greatest weaknesses. So let's just take a moment this morning and look at the kinds of questions that Jesus actually asked people in the biblical narrative. Do you want to be made well? Jesus asked the man who for 38 years is waiting to be healed at the pool of Bethesda. Does no one condemn you? He responds to the woman who was caught in adultery. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. What do you want me to do for you? Ask Jesus of the mother of James and John when she approached them. What are you discussing as you're walking along? He said to the two who were walking on the road to Emmaus following the resurrection. Do you also want to leave me? He asked the disciples after many found his teachings too difficult. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? Do you love me? And the question in today's text, what are you looking for? Almost all of those quotes that I've just used are from the Gospel of John. Rarely is there any condemnation. It's always invitation to a deeper and a more profound embrace of the truth and of the one who is the way and the truth and the life. This morning, our text wants to talk about discipleship as we read this text that recounts the calling of the first disciples. Or more accurately, the transference of the first disciples from John the Baptist to Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes after John, but who ranks ahead of me because he was before me, according to John. Disciples are students, they're followers, they're devoted adherents. We are all called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Now the other Gospels in the New Testament record stories of the calling of the first disciples. Walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus calls the fishermen and says, follow me and I will make you to fish for people. That's in both Matthew and Mark. But for John's gospel, the calling of the first disciples is more an act of discovery. Disciples must first discover for themselves who Jesus is. And then they participate in bringing others to him as Andrew brings his brother Peter. All of this happens in this very first chapter in John. And later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will declare, You did not choose me, but I chose you. 
So the initiative comes from the Lord. But here at the very beginning of things, there's an active role of curiosity, of searching, of discovery. And it's equally important. Kind of reminds me of the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. There's this dynamic between seeking and being found. Like any good teacher, Jesus uses questions to unlock curiosity and learning, never to belittle or intimidate the student. What are you looking for, asks the Lord. It's not compulsion, it's invitation. And the question is not simply for the first disciples, it's for everyone who seeks to follow the Lord. It's an existential question, if you will. It can be answered on a variety of levels. What are you looking for? Is it fulfillment? Is it meaning or is it an escape from death? Are you looking for something that lasts? Are you in search of health or freedom or peace or justice or love or maybe just a better way of living life that has more joy, less fear? What are you looking for? One thing is sure. If you're not looking for anything, you can be sure you won't find it. I suspect most of us this morning are longing for something in our inner being, hoping for some gift of grace that we have not yet experienced in quality of life, a better experience of love, more joy, less heartache and pain and suffering in life. So whatever your answer to the question of Jesus, can you imagine this morning the Lord saying to you, come and see. Come and discover. See for yourself. Enter the discovery process. Draw your own conclusions. Because you won't be carried by the crowd on this one. You must use your own legs. You must explore your own curiosity. You must respond yourself to what is a blanket and yet a remarkably personal invitation. Come and see for yourself. Faith begins with each individual, but it does not end there. Personal piety is important, but it's not the only important thing in matters of faith. There is a journey of discovery in faith that lasts a lifetime and begins with each person, but it certainly expands from there to include others. So on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, let me illustrate what I'm trying to say with the example of Martin Luther King Jr. himself. He writes about his own discovery as a disciple, as a Christian, as a pastor, 
who eventually became the leader of the civil rights movement, the poet. There was a process of learning that he went through, a realization that began to dawn upon him, and he writes about it in his book, Strive Toward Freedom. With his formal theological education and training completed, he took his first pastor position in Montgomery, Alabama in the 1950s. He writes, When I went to Montgomery as a pastor, I had not the slightest idea that I would later become involved in a crisis in which nonviolent resistance would be applicable. I neither started the protest nor suggested it. I simply responded to the call of the people for a spokesman. And when the protest began, my mind, consciously or unconsciously, was driven back to the Sermon on the Mount with its sublime teaching on love and the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance. As the days unfolded, I came to see the power of nonviolence more and more. Living through the actual experience of the protests, nonviolence became more than a method to which I gave intellectual assent. It became a commitment to a way of life. Many of the things that I had not cleared up intellectually concerning nonviolence were now solved in the sphere of practical action. End quote. You see, his intellectual assent to the ideas of faith only became a commitment to a way of life in the sphere of practical action. And disciples then and now have a similar experience. Many of the things that don't get cleared up intellectually about our faith become solved when we begin to live out the implications of our faith. For the first disciples, whatever their values, their commitments, their uncertainties, their fears, their unsolved intellectual conundrums, things began to clear up in the sphere of practically following this Lord Jesus Christ. And that invitation is there for every one of us this morning. Now on April 16th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was confined in the Birmingham City Jail for a protest. And a number of Alabama Christian ministers had written an open letter previously expressing concern that nonviolent resistance would lead to these kind of civil disturbances. Rarely did King respond to his opponents. But on this occasion, he wrote a response from the Birmingham jail wanting Christian ministers to see that the very meaning of Christian discipleship was at the heart of the African-American struggle for freedom, justice, and equality. These Christian ministers encouraged King and his followers to wait 
for the newly elected administration in the state and city offices to have time to implement change. To that, Martin Luther King wrote these words. For years now, I've heard the words wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and you see the tears welling up in her little eyes when she's told that Fun Town is closed to colored children, and you see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. And when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking in agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? And when you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. And when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, and when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the blackness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. End quote. Now, for years, in the Christian community, we've been divided over divided between those whose central concerns have to do with personal piety of our faith and those whose chief concerns are matters of social policy. The personal 
and the public, the inward journey and the involvement with the world, they appear to still be unsynthesized, and yet they're two sides of the same coin in the church. The gospel calls us to both. Discipleship demands both. And the older I get and the further I go along in this journey of discovery we call faith in Jesus Christ, the more I realize the truth of this insight from Martin Luther King Jr. that faith is more than an intellectual assent to ideas. It must become a commitment to a way of life. And it's a way of life that leads to reconciliation and justice for all the children of God. The personal and the public dimensions of discipleship must be held together. What are you looking for this morning? Come and see, says the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.